for every single week for me, it is reiterated in the conversations that I get to have with these amazing people that are doing amazing things that may or may not be the way that I would imagine that they, they could or should be done, right? And yet they're brilliant. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So welcome today to Learning Unboxed. Today we have a very special treat because this is our 100th episode of Learning Unboxed. And to celebrate 100 episodes, we're having a bit of a a reversal and a mic takeover. Um, So the Past Foundation's board chair for a number of years now, uh, the wonderful Dr. Rich Rosen, is going to be taking over the mic and uh, he is leading this interview today. So uh, this should be uh, fun. So Rich, welcome to the program. Thank you. And thanks for having me back. I've uh, enjoyed listening and I enjoyed being part of one a long, long time ago. Congratulations on number 100. That's a big milestone. So uh, we're all very proud of this podcast that passed. And I'm thrilled to be the one to have a chance to now turn the mic on you and have a chance to ask you some questions. There you go. So, uh, <laughs> thank you for doing that. We've known each other a long time, but I'm sure I'm going to learn a few things about you in this process. So, we we, we have. So I don't know why anybody wants to hear more about, about <laughs> me or what I've got going on. But, um, you know, like you said, you know, we are super proud of Learning Unboxed and we love the chance to uh, highlight all the amazing things that are happening out in the world of, of education today. So um, Learning Unboxed is a, a really, really um, passion project for not just myself, but the entire organization. So, yeah, absolutely. Terrific. So let's uh, um, let's do this before we jump into some of the things that have happened on Learning Unbox throughout uh, the first hundred episodes. Let's talk about you and what uh, what has happened in your story uh, hmm. that has influenced kind of who you've become. So uh, tell us a little bit about you uh, and sort of your origin story, and and then what are the either experiences or people or events that have influenced the the things that you find yourself doing now wow that's a that's a heavy question there dr rosen um (laughs) you know origin story is a funny thing and i and i think that you know there's um lots of opportunity to reflect um over time and i think we all do that naturally as we get older we have more experiences in life but i think that there are likely several key sort of things for me that were heavily influential as it relates to me landing in the space I am in 2021 in particular. I think first and foremost is that, you know, I loved to learn. And as a little kid, I was very fortunate that I had a family that believed I could do anything I wanted to do. And for better or worse, they failed to point out you know, sometimes that that might not be the best choice for you, or maybe you want to think about something a little bit differently, you know, in hindsight, maybe you would want to know that before you got too far down a journey. But I think most important in all that was that love of exploration, which, you know, as, as I went through my academic journey, I was that kid that was uber bored in school. 
So I tried everything. And again, my family was really supportive of that. So, uh, you know, I went to, to, I started taking college classes way a million years ago is how old I was, you know, back before we had AP or any of these other alternatives or early college, all the things that we, we talk about on this program, none of that stuff existed, right? So, you know, but my parents had the wherewithal to say, okay, well, let's go take some classes at the community college and things like that. So I developed a very early love for community college and all the things that you could explore, you know, in that sort of venue, in that setting and started taking classes when I think I was 13, maybe when I took my first college classes and just experimented, you know, along the way. So that was heavily influential. And what it what it meant for me was that I tried a lot of stuff. I was that kid that I, you know, most of the majors in college, I at least dabbled in them for a little while, trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I don't know that I necessarily fully have that um, you know, solidified now, but it also meant that I spent a lot of time in school and a lot of time in college, so multiple undergraduate um, and graduate degrees, ultimately landing on becoming an anthropologist and an archaeologist. And for many, many years, for me, that was a tough road to get to because I had this idea that, you know, to be an archaeologist was not it wasn't a viable career option. I had an example in my family, an uncle who was an archaeologist. He was this kooky dude who showed up at, you know, the family dinner table with a you know, a brown paper bag full of these artifacts, and he'd pull them off and he'd tell these fantastical stories. And I loved it. And I thought, oh my God, this is so cool. And then I'd look at my uncle Jim, who I adored, and think, you know, he's just a kooky old professor kind of dude, but is is that really a job? And it just never occurred to me that it could be a job. And yet all the way through my collegiate journey, it was always classes in anthropology that I came back to, whether I was in pre-vet, whether I was physical science, whether I was studying chemistry. And again, I tried them all, uh, not engineering, but I tried lots of other things. And But that was the fun classes that I would take. I'd take these crazy hard classes that were really, really stressing me out or or, or taxing my, my brain and my thinking. And yet I'd come back to an anthropology class. And what I discovered along the way is that I loved the human journey. And I really loved having an understanding of all the different factors that came to play. And then for me, I also loved archaeology and underwater archaeology, which is where I ultimately landed, because it was so interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary to use a word that we use it past all the time, meaning, you know, I had to take my entire team, the entire uh, you know, um, intellectual capacity of these great thinkers all around. Um, and we had to go to the field together to do a thing or we wouldn't be successful to ask the right mm -hmm. questions, to have the right techniques, to understand all the science. And that was a huge influencer for me. And it's the basis then of the past foundation in the sense that, you know, we wanted to create an ecosystem where you were immersed in that collaborative endeavor and that, you know, you didn't have to know the answers before you got there and that the journey was part of the discovery along the way mm -hmm. and that everything was very applied on and hands-on. And and then, you know, that, that sort of progressed. And then I got to, quite frankly, meet people like you, like yourself, right? And so when past decided to shift from uh, a casual sort of everybody had a day job um, in 2005 or six, when we decided we needed a full-time operating endeavor and we needed a real lab and went to test things, you know, that's when I met you because you were so heavily involved in the start of the what became the Metro Early College uh, STEM um, experience. And that was incredibly helpful as well because I met like-minded people who said, hey, we don't have the answer, but that's okay. Let's be collaborative and do this really, really cool thing. So, mm -hmm. 
I remember those days well. So <laughs> thanks for bringing those up. So one of the things that happens at Passing with all the folks that you have interviewed, there's a there's often a common element of what how they interact with their either students or adult mm-hmm. learners, whoever that might be. And there's there's typically some sort of capstone event that happens. So before we hop off of your backstory to mm-hmm. some other things I want to ask you about, um, are there some capstone things in your life that you think about uh, from the time you you wandered into archaeology and found a love of archaeology, did some various projects and things? Mm-hmm. Um, are there were there were there any capstone um, activities that are like I think back to that even now that that shaped my thinking or it it did something for me that 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 helped in the trajectory of your career? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. Um, and it's hard to choose just kind of one or two. I mean, the interestingly enough, for better or worse, though at least certainly when I was really sort of getting my 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 flippers, we'll use that term, underneath me and sort of the world of underwater archaeology at the time that I was going through in graduate school, we were still a relatively small group of professionals around the world. And that is still, relatively speaking, a, a, a small group compared to other research sciences. But what it did was it meant that we all had to help each other. So whether you were an expert in X, Y, or Z, whatever the project was going to be, you know, if the call went out, you volunteered because you're going to need those exact same professionals to come help you because there just weren't enough of us, you know, to draw from. And what I can tell you from that is you very quickly um, became willing to say sure. And you let go of, I don't know how to do that, or I don't know what the expertise is going to be. And a great example of that for me was in 2003, I had the chance to work with a wonderful group of researchers that was at the time was a company by the name of CNC Technology. They were working in the Gulf of Mexico. These were, these were colleagues I had gone to grad school and they were doing deep water research in the Gulf of Mexico. And they stumbled across a, an anomaly on all the scans that, that, that were taking place to lay pipe in, in the Gulf of Mexico as part of the oil industry. And they quickly decided, hey, that you know the, the anomaly on these scans is a, the U-166, a German U-vote. And then the other anomaly over here we think is actually the vessel, the Robert E. Lee, that the U-166 was reportedly um, to have downed during the middle of the war. Big, big, big piece of American and global history. And yet it was more than 6,000 feet down. And, you know, the team came to me and said, hey, you know, you're, you're really passionate about the outreach and engagement component of the work that we all do, you know, could could you help us figure out how to engage the world in this research science? And that part was the easy part, but the hard part was how the heck do you do that from 6,000 feet beneath the surface, right? And something on that scale in that depth had not really been done before. And so I think from a capstone standpoint, you know, that was pivotal to me because we just launched and we tried it. And it was a game changer for me because it really set the stage for a couple of key things. One, that, you know, that sort of fearlessness around saying yes, but two, embracing technology and the rate and pace of change of scientific knowledge and 
endeavor and understanding because of the rate and pace of change of technology making it possible. So suddenly, mm-hmm. for example, right, everything we knew about physics and acoustics prior to uh, to some extent, you know, we were able to do all the things that, that that science only imagined, right? It's like the same sort of thing that happened when we actually were able to put, you know, men on the moon. We we imagined that. We thought we, we under, had the understanding to do it. But at the end of the day, you know, until you actually try it, can we pull it off? Do we, do we have all the pieces? Mm-hmm. That was really seminal for me. And and it has plays into almost every decision I think that we've made in projects that we take on at past. You know, I, I like to do things more than once, but I don't like to do them over and over again. That's part of my own leadership philosophy. It's like, well, we've been there, done that. And it's not that it's not worthy, but there are now others out there that have experienced it too. Let them do that. Let's find that sort of bleeding edge space that we should be thinking about instead. Because I think that's our sweet sure, spot. Sure, sure. And you can see that in in the work that uh, that takes place. So I'm going to uh, switch gears now to talking about kind of uh, contemporary things mm-hmm. that you're involved with and and maybe some contentious things that, mm-hmm. are, that I want to get some viewpoints on. First one is going to be about gender. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I spend a lot of my time, as you know, in, in teaching. And, mm-hmm. and many of, of uh, my wonderful students are women. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have wonderful, wonderful ideas, and they're very accomplished in their in their own rights and the programs that we're involved with, uh, doing tremendous things. And I see that even when I look across your uh, hundred podcasts, you know, the, I, I didn't do any statistics, but I would venture to say that there's that there are more women than men in mm-hmm. most of those conversations. Mm-hmm. So the the question. Uh, uh, I'll default on that women are better at this than men because I actually <laughs> believe that. I actually believe that there's a that, that, that we, there's a role for all of us, but I think there's a really strong role for having women in leadership roles. But here's my question about about change. We're in a situation where the dynamic is that to move from from all of these wonderful sort of spot programs that work, they make mm-hmm. a difference for the people that have the benefit of being able to be involved in them. They change lives, but to make uh, a more systemic kind of movement around those, it requires you to be you and and those like you to be uh, in front of legislators, in front mm-hmm. of um, in front of uh, policymakers, etc. In a world that is that is dominated by men and mm-hmm. older men, mm-hmm. and so uh, this is not a man versus woman question as much as it is a question about your instincts and advice about. Uh, what do you what do you keep in mind when you are talking with an audience that is uh, well intentioned but maybe out of date mm-hmm. about what school is and about what education means and so on and so forth? But certainly, uh, in their own right, are interested in seeing things advance. Um, how does how does that how does the role of being a woman in that environment play into your calculus of how you have to talk to folks? Yeah, that's a really intriguing question, Rich. Leave it to you to toss that one out there. You know, I think a couple of things. The first one is getting getting to the point of recognizing that when those conversations are taking place in the world of education, which is a sort of funny thing, right? So, you know, I came to this sort of from the backside, if you will, right? I started out as a research scientist, but I grew up in an environment 
surrounded by teachers. Both my parents were school teachers, aunts and uncles were school teachers. They were everywhere, right? And so I spent a ton of time some and the running joke in the family is by force, right? Of of being in the midst of the design and development of what makes great teachers, great thought leaders in that sort of space. And the reason I start with that is because when you have those conversations with these um, policymakers or the, these powerhouse folks, even in industry, most CEOs, right, that I may go talk to and ask for funding, they're 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 usually men as well, white men, um, uh, um, most of the time. And part of it is the recognition that those folks lend credence to you because you're female, because you're talking about education. The majority of educators are women. We have this sort of back-end notion that that is still women's work. And if you recognize the person sitting across from you may be more than happy to hear all about the innovations. They, to your point, they want you to succeed somewhere in the back of that mind because we've all grown up in this environment. And you have to start by recognizing where people come from. And with the recognition of where someone comes from, you can have a better understanding of where they sit right now and the way they want to engage and have conversations with you, right? So if when I'm wearing my educator hat, right? I'm perceived because I'm a woman in many ways that I must have some knowledge because that's my background um, baggage, my cultural baggage that whoever I'm talking to, and it can be an entire panel of folks are going to have. The flip side of that is when I have the same conversation and I'm talking about STEM, even in the educational landscape, right? I have to remember and remind myself at some point in that conversation to be credible having that piece of conversation. I have to make sure that my listener knows I'm also a research scientist. And when I don't connect those dots for folks, you can sort of see people struggle in that conversation. And I think it, it takes a little bit more effort mm -hmm. to get everybody on the same page. But mm -hmm. I, half the battle for me has been, quite frankly, being able to set the table for the conversation we're going to have mm -hmm. with, all mm -hmm. the, with all the accoutrement that I need at that table so that all participants can engage in the meal we're about to have. Sure, sure. And it's... Um... And that's part of your your cultural anthropology background mm -hmm. and, and your your study of human nature, kinds of study of cultures that right. kind of, that helps you with that. Right. And uh, not everyone has that, and, right. and so I wanted to get a sense of, you know, sometimes as we as any of us approach an education reform agenda, it comes from a brute force perspective. This right. is broken, must be fixed, must be fixed now. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's a that's a, a tough place to start a conversation. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about your conversations that you have had over the last uh, 100 episodes or so. Um, there's a couple of things in, uh, in the themes of them that I thought, uh, or, or in the meta themes, I guess, mm -hmm. that I wanted to ask you about. Sure. So um, the first is that uh, in almost everyone, when you ask them the story of, so how did this come to be? Uh, it generally uh, has uh, some elements of passion, mm -hmm. you know, a person that's really uh, steeped in something that they want to get done, uh, and, a, and a large amount of luck. Mm -hmm. And the luck part is not their own luck, but that they met somebody. It's generally mm -hmm. a I was doing this, had no idea this had anything to do with that, saw this person, this person showed me this, and then away I went. Right. So that's what I see when I'm listening to mm -hmm. them. Is, is, that, uh, is that a true uh, depiction of, what, of, of what's actually going on in, in, in these uh, conversations and what you've been learning? 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation. And I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I think that you're correct. And I would say that for me, if I were to sort of drill down and look at all those 99 conversations that have happened Mm -hmm. thus far, I would say that one of the commonalities is that when you start digging into the origin stories, the passion pops up. But the other thing that almost always pops up is somebody will make reference to somebody that helps them get there. So I think mentorship Mm -hmm. cannot be underscored. And I think that that's really, really critically important, especially when you're talking about evolving gender opportunities right? That mentorship is really, really key. I mean, it's certainly part of my um, my own story and success, but I think that in almost every single one of the episodes, you'll find that that folks learned how to lean on others, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, uh, the second thing that is in uh, embedded in your uh, stories is, the, is just the sheer wide variety of things that are there. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think the message that that one can take away from that is that there is virtually no environment that's, that does not have a learning element right. in it if you look for it. Right. Right. Uh, you know, and, it, and it's not it's not only that you can learn about uh, STEM from music or you can learn about uh, entrepreneurship from this or mm-hmm. whatever, but it's it's more a matter of of um, people who got ultra creative with the things they already had. And right. and so I want you to talk a little bit about kind of your own message of uh, at, at times where the world was a little more open and people could come visit things, mm-hmm. they could come past, they could go to Metro, they could go to High Tech High out West, they could go to wonderful places right. and see, you know, these, these incredible things that are going on and then walk away being very intimidated about them by, right. by saying, I right. don't have one of those. Right. And then... Um, and then you see someone talk about a program with virtually no resources mm-hmm. and they get incredible results. And and so um, I wonder how you how you set up the message for for basically encouraging everybody that they've they, that they've already got what they need to succeed. Right. I mean, if that I think indeed is the message, by the way, if that indeed is. is, is yeah. Yeah. And I think that part of it is, you know, and I say this always in the intro to the to the program is, you know, we've had and very fortunately, you know, at the past innovation lab and we we built that. And I say we, um, you know, um, the board was so integral to making the decision. Do we make this investment and build this thing? Right. And so what is that thing? And the purpose of that thing was to show people what we had been talking about, what you and I and the, the world and the experience that we've seen is that, to your point, not every place has X, Y or Z, but there's great innovation happening everywhere all the time. And yet people would come to this amazing place and I would hear at some point in the course of, of the tour, the conversation, invariably, I would I would hear it every single time, well, such and such is broken, education's broken, or this or that, or, or we can't, we don't have the resources, or, or our kids can't, or they won't, or take your pick, right? And the, the, the premise of learning unbox was to say that's really not true, right? That these are case studies of the amazing things that are in fact happening. And they're happening with a variety of resources. They're happening on a shoestring. They're happening with very limited, you know, people and places in play. And yet that's still one of those components that, um, we don't have any difficulty reaching in and grabbing great examples. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that part of it is just helping folks 
get comfortable in recognizing that no matter where you are, you've got entities, organizations, innovators right in your your ecosystem. You just have to be brave enough to tap into them to say, hey, I want to do a thing and I'm not an expert in that thing and that's okay. And yet it will make a difference in the lives of kids. And it's, and, and that's the other thing that I see really common in every single one of these stories and you you tapped onto it. By the time we get to the point where we're doing a, an episode of Learning Unboxed, these folks are incredibly invested, right? Because they're so passionate. And almost every single one of those stories that we'll also talk about that it took a lot of work to get there. And yet that work wasn't a scary thing to do. It started out maybe scary for some folks, but the reality, there was joy in the journey. And the mm-hmm. outcomes are yeah. phenomenal, yeah. right? Yeah. They're phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. So how do you feel that the good ideas can spread? And there, if we think about the, the, the ecosystem of, of, um, of, of an educational environment, we've got We've got innovators like the ones that you talk to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got uh, we've got passionate advocates and mentors and so on. Let's talk about the if if there's a pivotal role of some class of of individuals inside of the ecosystem who hold the keys to being able to go from uh, these these great ideas and these these uh, affiliations of wonderful folks and great results. What's missing in the and what message? Uh, what's missing? Who who are the people that need to be in that missing seat or seats? And what what do you want them to do? Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting question. I think a really powerful one as well. And um, so I don't even have to stop and think about this one. And I and then I'm going to credit you, actually, Rich, to teaching me this. I think one of the single most important aspects in all of this is recognizing that there is incredible power in building networks, right? And through those networks, this notion of public-private partnerships that come to bear on what it is that you're talking about that. And then the third piece that I would add to that, so network, public-private partnership, is the individual actors that are most missing from most from these endeavors that I've looked at and thought about or had the opportunity to rub up against is we fail, I think, we, we fail to recognize the incredible value and insight that is available into our uh, groups of newly retired people. And here's the reason I say that, right? So, you know, and education is a great space to think about that because we will often say, hey, we've been doing X, Y, or Z for the last 20 years, last 50 years, right? This is how we've always done it. This is how we've always trained folks. This is how we've always assumed the meaning of school. This is what the set of outcomes are. This is the order in which you should take your classes, right? And yet none of that translates in most cases, to any type of real-world experience that's going to come after you've left that initial ecosystem, right? And yet, within these transitional points, you've got these masses of humanity with an entire career worth of understanding and of experience. Um, and it goes beyond mentorship. And really, in my mind, it, 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 it keys into the fact that if we were to let go of what we think teaching and learning should look like, and we embrace the opportunity to teach and learn, Mm -hmm. then suddenly, in my mind, that is a game changer. And you've got people, a whole host of people from a variety of backgrounds 
and life and places um, who all you have to do is ask or show them, hey, there's that value in this thing that you know that suddenly they can tap into. And they are often a game changer because they come with a completely different set of experiences around helping evaluate the quality of the questions you're trying to answer or the outcomes you're trying to sort of get at. And I think that that is an untapped resource. Mm -hmm. And in that vein, how do you, how would you um, advocate, not just for yourself, because I've seen you do this very well, but how, how would you advocate to help others make this case? Evidence is, or, or education is a very evidence-based mm-hmm. uh, profession, more so than pretty much any other one in terms of the, the adherence it has to evidence and how long it takes that evidence to occur, which means that uh, you can look at something, you and, and your colleagues at PASS can look at something and you can say, look, we don't even have to measure this. We know that works, mm-hmm. right? If I, You just have to sit here for a day and watch and you'll know that whatever's going on, it works. And then someone will say, but how do you measure that, mm-hmm. right? Because because if we want to go from 100 people doing this over over a summer to uh, uh, to 60 million students across the country, mm-hmm. uh, not everybody has the same recognition of quality and 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 so on, nor the same resiliency to to take something that doesn't look like it's working, and 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 quickly kind of make an adjustment so that children and kids and young adults are still learning. So how do you tell or, or convince someone that there's a new kind of evidence and it's mm-hmm. not the kind of evidence that we historically think about in education and that we need to be turning our heads towards that? Yeah, that, that's a hard one, right? Because to your point, you know, education is is driven, quite frankly, um, by that the data that shows positive growth or impacts, right? So think pre-post or think standardized testing. Take your pick. It doesn't make any difference. And all of those things are needed and necessary. So there's no, there's no reason to say, hey, we need to get rid of those. But but I think that the question in my mind really becomes at scale, right? How do you convince community, right, that if we let go of those things that we traditionally measure and we Ask the community to instead think about the way the passion, the engagement, the inspiration, just the the want and will to be the learner in these new or or reimagined sort of environments. That if we can instead measure that the kid wants to go to school every single day, right? I, you know, I can't talk to you right now, mom or dad, right? I, I, I gotta go. The bus is here because today we're going to be mapping cicadas and we're gonna use that really cool app that was on television last night, right? That the news reporters were talking about. We're gonna help those scientists at the university of such and such with their data. You know, we, we've got to get to that point, but to, but to your point, that's a really tough space to be because it, it asks folks to be willing to allow for the wobble, right? And we do talk about that a lot at past. We say, look, you know, anytime you're going to, you're going to transition to a completely different way of thinking about whatever, and it could be about product design, it could be about teaching and learning, it'd be about anything else. There's a moment where failure you're, you're living failure, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're experiencing it. It's not working the way you think it should, or mm-hmm. you're, you're not sure you're getting the results that you have, right? And you have to be willing to plow through that moment, that moment of uncertainty and unknown to get onto the other side. Right. And, right. and for me, 
that moment comes every time I have the opportunity to watch a kid, a student, a teacher, or even an industry partner who's participating stand up and tell the world what they know or what they just experienced. And you would never ask these questions again. Yeah, yeah. Right, but you have to live, but to your point, I think you, it's, it's hard because how do you do that at scale when what we, we've always known says, if I can't pass this test, I'm not going to be ready for the next thing. And what we're telling you is the test is important. It, it, it's a milestone for us. It's a, a guidepost, but it's not the thing that really matters. That's hard. So let me ask you um, to react to a couple of, of uh, sort of Rorschach style questions. You're going to give me trouble for um, sure, aren't you, Rosen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I promise I won't. Uh, the, the first one is, um, uh, which do you more align with? Kids know better what they need or adults know better what kids need? Hmm, kids always. I'll always choose kids. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, the second one is education is is broken and will not change or education is broken and it will be replaced by something else that, that uh, as opposed to reform. Okay. If I have to choose between those two and those are the only well, two choices you, could, you, you give me, Rosen, I'm going to choose the yeah. second one. But I would say that education is not broken. It's okay. just obsolete in its current iteration. It actually did everything it was supposed to be as it was designed. We're just living in a system that hasn't iterated. And quite frankly, hasn't iterated in a long enough time that we're to the point that the system has to have a complete overhaul, redesign, re-engineer. It's, it's not broken. It's just not what we need anymore. Right. So as, as engineer, product engineers would say, mm -hmm. the system's perfectly designed to do what it does, yep. right? Yep. It's just that, that no one's asking for the features that the product does any longer. Right. Or, few, or, or it needs other features that we right. don't have. So yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so let's talk about your guests over the last year and what mm -hmm. you have, what you've learned from them. So uh, just in any in any way you want to kind of think about the arc of the first hundred mm -hmm. uh, and what those conversations were like. What do you take away from those? Uh, what what kinds of things uh, should should we know about what's going on in your head as you're doing interview one hundred and one? Yeah, I think that the thing that uh, stands out to me the most outside of the pieces we've already talked about, the passion and, you know, the, the, the journey components is in every single case, there was a stressor that showed up in whatever the ecosystem that the particular episode or the individuals I'm interviewing, you know, where we were there to talk about. There was a stressor that came to bear that became so un unmanageable or or so I gotta get out of this. I don't want to do it this way. That there was there was something that pushed folks to think very, very differently or to apply or to build or to imagine. And it's that stressor point, I think, that is there's so much opportunity to learn from that moment. And so for example, as we all know, because we've just been living, you know, in the midst of this global pandemic, Everybody involved in school, once a decision was made that we don't just stay home and take a pause, thinking this thing will go away really quickly, but that, no, it's, this is a long-haul sort of opportunity for us, and so we have to somehow get back to whatever it is that we do. And whether that's a company, a school, a program, the National Park Service, right? Take your pick. Everybody found themselves in that moment, and that stressor was, I can't survive 
I can't continue to do the thing I do or that I'm supposed to be doing unless I make some kind of radical shift in the way I think about getting to whatever that is. So that might be delivery and virtual instruction in a school setting or, you know, think about all the different companies that no longer had customers that could walk into, you know, a storefront or or we can't even deliver stuff in the same way. Think about all the restaurants. And in every single time, I think it was that stressor in my mind that I think is the greatest. But and, and even prior to the pandemic, every single story, there was a stressor there. Right, right. You know, what's what's interesting to me, Annalise, about that, and I wanted to I wanted to ask about uh, COVID, uh, but not to dominate our mm-hmm. conversation about COVID. But to your point about each of these um, individual innovations that you've talked about with some of your guests, had a had some nucleating point. Something mm-hmm. happened, mm-hmm. like and and either it was like we can't do it like that anymore. I must change, and or some some event pushed them to to action. When COVID first occurred, and then it became apparent that that everybody was going to get sent home. Mm-hmm. In the very beginning, uh, you could argue that was one of the biggest educational stressors you know, on the planet for a while, mm-hmm. and. You know, you and your colleagues and and we all were in conversations about, you know, in the early days, I remember people saying this could be the best thing that's ever happened. Right. right? Because right. it's going to it's going to draw some awareness to it's going to it's going to it's going to release the sort of the soft underbelly of what goes on in education. Uh, we're going to see what happens when we relax um, uh, testing for a little while because we don't have the logistics mm-hmm. to do it. And, you know, all kinds of things like that. But this notion of this could be our moment, right? Because everybody's sort of looking at the same thing. And then you fast forward, you know, 50 weeks or so mm-hmm. uh, in which now people have had family members die and and fear of various things going on, losing their jobs, the, you know, the whole meltdown of, of all the things that took place. And, and it went from, this could be one of the best things that could happen to when the heck are we going to get people back into school because they need to go back to school and mm-hmm. arguably they do, they mm-hmm. need to get back to some mm-hmm. routine that's, that works for them. But I'm curious as a, as a, a study, a person who studies culture and has been down the road, you've been, what's your sense of why it went that way? Why did, why did we as a world uh, and as an educational community, as a subculture in that uh, go from being so excited in an odd kind of way of this is our moment. Let's innovate into this as much as we can. Let's lean into this like mm-hmm. we lean into other things. To going back to what looks like a receding back into the old ways. Yeah, I think that part of that is, you know, when something something is new, I think that humanity has a tendency to embrace opportunity to innovate. It's not so scary yet, right? That's part of it. So some of it is just this this broad sort of fear factor. There's a lot of unknown, but I, I don't even know enough to be afraid of the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. And so in that, the mindset is I'm willing to see sort of what happens and to think a little bit differently. But I think that as time goes on, and certainly in the conversations that I've had, you know, it's really interesting because if you look at the interviews I did in the early, so let's say, you know, months, six weeks after, um, you know, the pandemic really hits, people are still very optimistic about 
about the the opportunity to be different and to come out on the other side having used this um, as a mechanism to make some change I'd always been thinking about, right? But I think as time goes on, people get weary. We are all collectively, you know, as a planet, everybody is exhausted. Um, And, you know, there's been the highs and lows of this in every way you can imagine. It's different every place around the world. But to your point, there are these consistent things. And and I think that when we get tired and we when we we just feel overwhelmed because of the tiredness of the entire thing that's happening around us, we have a natural tendency to fall back on the thing that we know. Even if we know that's not what we should be falling back to, it's just human nature. Right. And I think that the the biggest push, if we were going to push folks to do anything, it's to say, let's stop talking about, I want to go, I want to get back to normal. Right. And first and foremost, at least in education, I would argue normal was not was not working well for all participants. Right. There was great inequities that are going on um, in the world because of the system we just talked about. Right. The flip side of that, though, is there there's some comfort in some of the normality. So if part of the normality is I want to get as many kids back physically in schools as possible, great, embrace that and step back and let go of, but then we have to teach all the same content in the same way with the same participants, right? The opportunity isn't about not having kids in school. If having kids in school is deemed socially, emotionally, all these other things, uber important, the opportunity is okay then, we can actually redesign, mm-hmm. right? And I, and I do think that that's some of it. I, I think part of it is just the fear and weariness of it because yeah. you I, can I think... see that in the episodes if you track through them, right? Yeah. You know, early on, yeah. people were very optimistic and then you get in, in the middle, it's folks, oh, you know, we think this is going to happen. And then the ones, you know, right now as we're getting ready, you know, we're a full year in and we're talking about, you know, are we even going to be able to put kids back in school in the fall of 2021? Right. And lots of folks think that we will, but there's still a wariness and a weariness in those conversations. Right. I think there's another aspect, too, that was different about the about moving into the lockdown. And this is our moment Mm -hmm. uh, that that belies that it really wasn't ever it wasn't teed up in a way that you could actually do all that. And that is that we, we also separated the caring adult from the students. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. To the mm-hmm. point that, that even if you knew what you wanted to try to do, you know, there were, there were physical logistical issues that made it so that that thing you would have liked to have tried to do mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and that you were probably ready to do, uh, you know, would have, would have been different. So, um, you know, I think that's, that makes a lot of sense as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to, we're winding up on the, on our time. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to uh, close out my session uh, portion, and then I'm going to let you have the last words since <laughs> you, uh, since you let me have the first words. So first I want to thank you for um, uh, letting the roles be reversed. So someone could uh, have a chance to learn more about who it is behind uh, Learning Unboxed mm-hmm. and Leadership at Past. Uh, I want to say on behalf of, of, of a whole community of folks that have, have worked with past in every different capacity, uh, including being very intimately involved as a as a board member and a board chair. That um, the work you do is relevant. The work you yourself do as a as a leader in in this field uh, makes a difference. And 
uh, and we all thank you for that. So uh, much appreciated. So let me let you uh, kind of close out with any final words about kind of what the next hundred episodes will look like <laughs> or anything else that you want to point us towards in the future. Well, thank you very much, um, Rich, both for your time and for your very kind words. And, and obviously, you know, the the support and the mentorship over the years has been incredibly meaningful to me. And I guess one of the things that I would sort of close with as it relates to sort of the the journey of past, certainly the first 20 years, and, and, and some of the things that I've learned through doing Learning Unboxing these, these first 100 episodes has really sort of tied to, there is so much to learn, right? You know, and, and the the irony maybe, or maybe not, depends on your point of view for me, is, you know, when we first started past and, you know, we were just really kind of experimenting with what this thing was going to be. And over time, it's morphed. We're getting ready to launch past 4.0, um, you know, over over the course of time. But but for, for better or worse, in that early moment, one of the things that we said is that we wanted this institution, this organization to link learning to life. And I think that as we've gone down the journey, you know, that is a piece that has remained steady no matter what else has been happening with us, the people who have come and gone, the board members that have come and gone, the community partners that have come and gone, which happens in the life cycle of every single organization is that linking learning to life. And the thing that for me that I've gotten, which has just been a real pleasure through doing these um, episodes of Learning Unbox, right? Because I didn't really know what we were going to get when we started it. We, I remember talking about that, you know, with, with the board. Hey, should we do this thing? Should we invest in, in crafting this, this idea? And one of those pieces for me have has really, truly been that there are so many ways to to do and to do really, really well. And, you know, that idea that one size does not fit all, which we had always talked about, it, it just for every single week for me, it is reiterated in the conversations that I get to have with these amazing people that are doing amazing things that may or may not be the way that I would imagine that they, they could or should be done, right? And yet they're brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, and that for me has been a very, very rewarding personal and professional growth opportunity because, you know, I started in this whole journey, you know, as an anthropologist and archaeologist, I have no idea what I'm doing most days, right? Um, And so, and I think that, you know, from the standpoint of what's going to happen next with learning Unbox, certainly is to explore more of that, especially as we come out of you know, this this entire global event that we've all, this crazy experiment one way or another, right, that we've been participating in is to really reach in and grab those pieces that I think that we can learn some pretty powerful lessons and examples and inspiration from. So that's where I'd love to see, see it go. So, yeah. Well, let's make it go there. So Absolutely. Thanks so much for, uh, for letting me be part of this conversation. Yeah, thank you for joining us today. Appreciate it. Okay, take care. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.